0: This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.
1: We don't read the first few chapters of Genesis in light of the totality of the written word of God. And when we don't do that, I think we we come up short.
0: So, James, you and I teach a class called Narrative of Redemption and... What I think I do for about half the semester and I think you do for about half the semester is even though we're supposed to be talking about the entire Bible, we end up spending a lot of time on the garden because there's so much there. in those first pages of your Bible, there's so much there that's so important. And so today we have the opportunity to talk to someone who I know is a good friend of yours, Richard Barcellus. He's the pastor of Grace Reformed Baptist Church in sunny, beautiful. Seemingly idyllic, Palmdale, California. And his book is entitled Getting the Garden Right Adam's Work and God's Rest in Light of Christ. So, Richard, thanks for joining us today to talk about this important topic.
1: Great. Thanks for having me.
0: I want to just start by asking this Your book is entitled Getting the Garden Right. So, how have evangelicals gotten the garden wrong?
1: That's a good question. How have evangelicals gotten the garden wrong? I'm assuming you mean by that in what ways?
0: Yeah, in what ways? So, yeah. so you're, you're trying to set people straight and make sure that we're reading this clearly and accurately, reading these first few pages of our Bibles and getting what we ought to out of them. What are some of the things that have gone wrong in people's reading of that?
1: Well, maybe it'll help to go behind the question of how or what the particular issues that I think some people get wrong are. Go behind that and ask the question of why have they gotten that wrong? Okay. And I would say that many have interpreted the early chapters of Genesis. I would include one through three sort of as a unit, an isolated unit of its own and isolated from the rest of scripture.
2: Right. The, the, the pre-fall pre-redemptive era.
1: Yeah. And even the fall and the curse narrative as well. I think sometimes those are read without allowing a wonderful Protestant hermeneutical principle that predates the Reformation without allowing a proper use of the analogy of faith, the rest of scripture, evoking the uh, first two and three chapters of Genesis and further elaborating and teasing out for us what's there implicitly. So I think it's a hermeneutical issue. We don't read the first few chapters of Genesis in light of the totality of the written word of God. And when we don't do that, I think we come up short.
0: So when you read the first three chapters in light of the whole Bible, the analogy of faith, comparing scripture with scripture, when you don't do that, what are some things that you will miss? Or maybe if you want to answer it positively, what are some things that you see when you look at this revelation about the garden in light of the whole of scripture?
1: Well, as far as the positive side of that, you see Adam as a type of Christ. And so, your Christology is enriched by a whole Bible interpretation of Genesis one through three Adam's not only as identification as a sinless image bearer, but also as a public person, a representative of others or a, a federal person, a covenantal person, and then his vocation as well. What was he called to do? Was he just to, you know, to be a gardener, or was the garden of eden something more than just a physical vegetables and fruit growing area if you read the entire bible you'll see that it's the first special dwelling place of god among men and if you couple that with genesis 128 subdue the earth and some of the language of the prophets like isaiah says that, that the lord created the earth to be inhabited the implication is to be inhabited by mankind Adam's calling, Adam's vocation was not restricted to a geographic place wherever the Garden of Eden was. It was to, in the language of G.K. Bill, you guys know this, extend the culture of the Garden throughout the created earth. And you don't know that unless you read the whole Bible.
2: There is, in the beginning of all things, a task and a goal to attain. Because I think it's easy for us sometimes to read the Garden as if it were a terminus, uh, a stopping place that... All Adam and Eve really needed to do was maintain things as they were, make sure that they did not disobey with regard to the tree of prohibition, and that if they did that, they would, in a certain sense, simply perpetuate the original Edenic existence, uh, but that there would be no progress towards something else. And I know in looking at your book, Getting the Garden Right, you don't read it that way, even though uh, so many have. I can remember reading it that way at one point. Mm-hmm, um, is Adam on his way towards some goal and towards some objective? And what is that objective and what are the conditions of it? I think this is what you're trying to positively tease out in your book, uh, even in the polemical sections.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there is when you read the, the garden narrative in light of the entirety of scripture, there's a teleology, there's a goal, there's an eschatology, like Voss said, even prior to uh, the need for redemption, so that eschatology comes before or is prior to redemption, but because Adam reading the Bible as a whole did not reach that goal, which I think is glory. I'll talk about that in a minute. He did not reach that goal. Then the redemptive element of scripture comes to play, but the redemptive takes us to the goal originally preferred or offered to Adam. You know, there's an obscure kind of reading. I say obscure because not everyone reads Romans 3:23 this way, but I think it's the best way to read it for all of sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The first sinner was Adam. He fell short of something that he did not possess via his created status. It was something he could have attained to some, something he could have arrived at. He didn't arrive at it.
2: So I think the typical way of looking at that is to say that we somehow had the glory of God and then fell away from it. But you are reading that as presenting a glory of God as a sort of, um, eschatological beatitude that Mm -hmm. Adam didn't possess yet.
1: Yes. And then when the last Adam comes on the scene, his work is reduced to a twofold motif, sufferings and glory. He suffered and then he entered into glory by virtue of his resurrection on the third day of which Moses and the prophets said, this was going to take place that the Christ would suffer and then enter into glory, sufferings and glory. What is glory? Whatever it is, Paul tells us, and I think it's second Thessalonians that we're going to share in the glory of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. Now it doesn't mean that we assume divinity can't mean that because we're creatures, but according to his human nature, our Lord brought human nature to a state of existence beyond the ability of suffering. He brought it to glory. That's what I think we're going to share in, and I think that's what was preferred to Adam, the eschatological state, glory.
0: So, Richard, can I jump in then, since you brought up this offer made to Adam and the kind of goal, what would that have looked like? Uh, It's a counterfactual, but what what indications do we have in, in Genesis 1 and 2? about what Adam's life and, and mission, in a sense, was supposed to look like. You talked about spreading the, the, the glory of God and extending Eden. But can you put some meat on the bones of that a little bit?
1: Yeah, very carefully, though. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the Bible is clear. The Garden of Eden was the first temple. So you had sinless sons of God in the special presence of God under the rule of God if you take that concept those concepts and you extrapolate it out in light of genesis 128 be fruitful and multiply fill the earth then the conclusion would have been an earth filled with sinless sons of god in god's special presence the earth was would be a temple sinless sons of god in god's presence under god's rule and borrowing from i think graham goldsworthy on that And that's actually what we have in the eschaton. We have sinless sons of God in the special presence of God on the earth by virtue of the work of the last Adam.
0: So, and I appreciate what you're saying, which is there are certain things we just, don't fully know because it's 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 not the way it went but that would have been the goal is fairly clear so so now let me kind of turn it because you're responding to some things that you see as errors what are some of the ways that people have apart from isolating genesis one through three what are some of the conversation partners or the or the things that you're responding to in regards to the garden the ideas that people have about what's going on there theologically
1: yeah well just following the subtitle of the book adam's work would be what we traditionally call the covenant of works and among baptists in the 19 late 70s and 80s a movement called i don't know when they started to call themselves this new covenant theology arose it's not an exclusively baptist theological issue the nomenclature of the denominator new covenant theology is exclusive to baptists as far as i know but some of the things they deny like the covenant of works and the perpetuity of the Sabbath from creation to consummation. Those are also tinkered with by Calvinistic evangelicals of various stripes, and according to an email I got from a guy from either New Zealand or Australia about 15 years ago, New Covenant Theology was being exported from the United States down under, and it was affecting Presbyterians. He didn't give me a lot of details. I don't think I responded to it. So These issues of tinkering with the Covenant works, which ends up Messing up, by the way, the law of gospel antithesis. I think it starts real early, and you, you can confuse categories if you don't have, I think, a strong, a firm doctrine of the covenant of works unto eschatological or eternal life, preferred or imposed upon Adam by God in the garden.
0: So you're talking about New Covenant theology, the way you described it, New Covenant theology. So maybe you could kind of close wrap up by just summarizing for us what that consists of you talked about it tinkering with certain things messing with law and gospel the sabbath covenant of works could you summarize for us new covenant theology which you're responding to by reiterating the maybe more traditional understanding of adam and eve in the garden
1: yeah it's a baptistic movement that rightly wants to exalt the lord jesus and they have a priority of the new Testament over the old in terms of a hermeneutic, which I think in principle is a good principle, but they overdo it by not allowing the old Testament itself to comment on the old Testament. And that's one of the reasons why I think some of them, not all of them miss a covenant in the garden and a covenant with Adam. And they don't understand properly a whole Bible and understanding of the Sabbath.
2: And so, maybe bringing it full circle, how are covenant and Sabbath presented to us in the garden, and how are they both, in a certain sense, there at the beginning, but also pointing us to something future or eschatological in other words how do we establish those and i think you in your book you focus a lot on covenant of works and sabbath how do those establish that continuity from creation to consummation that actually helps us read the bible as an organic whole
1: yeah
2: and i'll let this i know that's your whole book and i'm asking you to sort of give me the overview of it but how would you just kind of in broad strokes how would you conceive that
1: Well, it took me 54 years to write that book and you want me to summarize it in 30 seconds, right?
0: Yeah, we can give you 45 seconds, Richard. Uh, 35. Well,
1: if the Bible (laughs) views God as the divine exemplar in working unto rest, which I think it does, and Adam is his son in his image, he is to work unto rest. And if you take that and think about Adam, the first and Adam, the last or the last Adam, our Lord, he worked unto rest after the divine exemplar, of course. And that rest is historically or redemptive historically a symbol of communion with God, but also a type of a future state for human nature. Adam obviously didn't enter into it. Adam was, the, you know, the protological son of God and then the typological son of God and corporate son of God Israel did not enter into that rest ultimately but the eschatological son our lord worked unto rest he obeyed unto glory and so if you take that as grounded in the creation narrative I think it does wonders for our understanding of the vocation of our Lord. And I I also think it helps interpret ancient Israel properly. So I guess that's the best I can do.
0: That's pretty impressive, Richard. And uh, so is the book. Thanks for giving us your time today. Thanks for putting all this work into articulating these things clearly and getting the garden right. Adam's work and God's rest in light of Christ and uh, really appreciate your time with us.
1: Great. Thanks a lot.
0: So, James, one of the things that never fails to impress me every time I teach through the first three chapters of Genesis or read anything on it is just the kind of inexhaustible riches of it. We mentioned at the beginning how we both spend a lot of time on Genesis 1 through 3 in our classes, and yet I always feel like I'm just scratching the surface. I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of rich theological gold in those first three chapters that really should shape how we understand human beings, how we understand what it means to be in
2: the service of the Lord, uh, what the Lord is doing in history. I'm just constantly impressed by that. And I think uh, Richard Barcellus in our talk touched on something really important in this respect, in which we allow subsequent scripture in its use of Genesis 1 to 3 to really illuminate for us and give us a a texture to what is actually transpiring and happening there. Because it is, it's, you know, when you read the Bible in a year, you're done with it in three days uh, and you're, and you're moving on. And it feels like a quick sort of um, preface to the real story. And yet so many of the trajectories of the real story, even of redemption, really antedate redemption itself. This idea of, I think Meredith Klein calls it, Adam's task to foreclose heaven and earth into one great eschatological order that we call the new heavens and the new earth, where God dwells with man and God is known and loved Universally, that this building of a habitation of man with God in blessedness is a task that lies before Adam. And that, in fact, the cultivating and keeping of the garden, that language, the priestly is, language, it's priestly language. It's language elsewhere used almost exclusively when it appears oh, as a couplet oh, to describe the work of the Levites in the temple. Yep, yep. Um, and then you get other things like Ezekiel describing Adam in the garden as a priest, basically wearing an ephod, this uh, invoking this really rich priestly description. And you get this idea that Adam is, as Richard said, you know, not just tending fruits and vegetables, but that that real historic situation of tending fruits and vegetables is in fact, at a spiritual level, the cultivating and the preserving or guarding of the presence of God. Yep.
0: Now, just switching gears and really quick comment about this book, helpful book, so much to learn from Genesis 1 through 3. It is a book, and you could probably tell this from the interview, it is a book that's aimed at a specific theological controversy. So, this isn't taking anything away from the book, but it's not necessarily the book that gives you an
2: introduction into Genesis 1 through 3. Right. And I, I think if I were to look – and Richard would be the first to say that um, – he's he's addressing a movement close to home for him among Calvinistic Baptists uh, with regard to New Covenant theology that he sees as theologically or hermeneutically right. compromised or insufficient – But for a sort of more positive presentation, you can think of something like um, Beale and Kim's volume, God Dwells Among Us, as a kind of introductory book. His bigger treatise on that, of course, uh, is the 2004 book, The Temple and the Church's Mission. Knowing Richard Barcellus, as I do, I know that he has drunk oh, deeply sure, sure, at sure. the well of, of Beal and Voss and others, and he's bringing a lot of that insight to bear on a theological trajectory within his own circle of Calvinistic Baptists. I think for readers, for listeners who might want to read the book, they'll find this as really an exemplary way of taking that kind of Voss and Klein and Beale way of reading the early chapters of Genesis into conversation with other well-known widespread so what we
0: want to say basically to listeners is dive into genesis one through three there's probably a lot more there than you realize i mean i'm speaking to myself i feel like i'm just scratching the surface getting the garden right is an important book if you're dealing with this particular issue and you'll glean things no matter what from it but if you want a copy of getting the garden right we'd love to give that to you you can go to placefortruth.org click on the theology on the go link And this is a book that we'd love to get in your hands: Getting the Garden Right, Adam's Work in God's Rest in Light of. Christ. And as always, we're we're grateful for you listening. We're grateful when you share this podcast with other friends, family members who might be interested. And if you are able to donate to us, you can do that by going to placefortruth.org or alliancenet.org, clicking on the donate button because we rely on the donations of listeners like you. And thanks as always for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.